So uh, on the weekend, if you missed it this weekend, uh, maybe you're out of town or what have you, but we covered verses one through 11 of chapter six to kind of give us a heads up, uh, head, head, head start, I should say, for Wednesday night, because I'd like to continue plugging away through the scripture in our uh, current plan uh, to get through the Bible in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, uh, a buddy of mine's doing a, a study uh, through the Bible and he's been in Romans in, for like th- three years. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Hopefully you'll finish the Bible in your lifetime. It is tempting though, isn't it? I mean, when the Bible's so rich, you can spend weeks and weeks and weeks, and especially the book of Romans or wherever in the Bible. Um, so we are doing just a quick study through the Bible and uh, there's so much here, but uh, we have work to do. So uh, the recap, a little bit of, of uh, chapter six, verses uh, one through 11, it actually started in chapter five, where Jesus was uh, being criticized and they were looking for problems with Jesus. They were looking for reasons to get mad at him, for reasons to indict him, and even ultimately kill him. They were jealous of him. Um, and so, you know, Jesus is accused of breaking the law, picking corn on the Sabbath, um, you know, working on the Sabbath. He healed the man with the withered hand. And we looked at uh, four attitudes real quick on, on, on the Sabbath day. And um, maybe you've had a chance to think more about that. People, uh, you know, have these attitudes and we, we looked at the Sabbath as good, uh, but not for me. That's the person that's like, oh, that's for the Old Testament Jews. But we talked about how the 10 commandments also have the Sabbath day. So some people say, oh, you know, oh, Sabbath is great, so I'll give it a whirl. Do we also give, thou shalt not commit adultery a whirl? Um, well, hopefully you're doing more than that, just like we should do more than that for the Sabbath. So then you, you could become a legalist and say, well, the Sabbath is the law, so let's keep it or else. That's another attitude, but that's also wrong. And we talked a lot about legalism and the um, lunacy of legalism. That was kind of the theme on Sunday and Saturday. Um, but then the fourth and, and correct attitude is the Sabbath is profitable. Um, so I get to keep it. Keeping the Sabbath is a get to, uh, not a got to. Um, so that's kind of where we, we le- left it. Um, Jesus is being you know, scrutinized by these religious leaders. And we pick it up there in verse 12. It says in verse 12, uh, and it says, it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. Why did Jesus need to go out and pray? Have you thought about that? You know, I mean, he is God. Why would God need to go pray to God? And people get up, up, uptight and all in a tizzy on this whole idea of Jesus praying to God the Father and the Holy Trinity and all that. And people get upset about that. I would just say, um, I'm not upset about that because um, I believe God is so far beyond our ability to understand. It's not a shocker to me that I can't figure him out. If God were big enough to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. Uh, but God exists sort of outside of time and space and our laws of physical uh, rules and what have you. And so when God became a man, he stepped outside of, his, of that, you know, that parameter of, of the laws of, of whatever God's, you know, physics, you know, the dimensions. You know, we, we don't even know how many dimensions there are. I'm pretty convinced, you know, um, yeah, and, and the space and time and and speed and all the different things of light and science, we, we kind of, we don't really know what we're talking about. I think we're still trying to figure it all out. But, um, you know, uh, one example was given to me once that I think was helpful is, you know, how can Jesus be talking to God? It'd be like if you, if we had the technology, which we don't, to make a back to the future time machine, a DeLorean pulls up here in front of the church right now. And you could get in that time machine and off you go. Uh, uh, and you went back to your kindergarten self. 
there you are in kindergarten where you were, running around with Billy and Susie and Johnny, uh, playing with blocks and stuff like that. And you could, you could sort of go through time and space. It's sort of like you know, the movie Back to the Future. I know this is clumsy where he'd see himself and he, he would mess with the future because of, you know, it was all, you know, it got very you know, complex. But what would you tell your kindergarten self? What would you talk to yourself about? What would you warn yourself off of? Man, watch out for Susie in fifth grade. You know, don't mess with her. Uh, or don't take the job, or don't go to that school, or don't, you know, whatever. Like, what would you tell your kindergarten self? You, you know, and, and we, we can kind of almost imagine that being possible if we had a time machine and we could go back in time and see yourself in a different dimension of time and space. Um, do you think God has a problem getting in different times and space and dimensions? Can God stop time? Well, he does in the Bible. He stops time. In the book of you know, Joshua, we read about that. And uh, God has no problem stopping time. And there's mysteries the Bible speaks about God. In Ecclesiastes 3, 15 and 16, it talks about how the things before God that have been in the past have not yet happened. And to God, the things that have not yet happened, well, they're already in the past. Uh, what, is that, what is that about? It's like if you're sitting at the Rose Parade. Do they still do the Rose Parade here in Portland? Or not anymore, probably not, because it's... Armageddon, it's hard to have a parade in Armageddon. But, um, but back when we used to do fun things in Portland, um, you could get your chair and sit on the side of the street and you'd watch a parade go by, right? And you'd see it linearly, you'd see the band go by and then the float and then you'd see the floaty thing and then you'd see another band and you know, it was just kind of going by and you'd see it in, in real time. But what if you got up in, in you know, a big helicopter and flying over and you could see the parade from beginning to end and from end to beginning, and you could know who's there and where they're going, you know exactly what they're all doing at the same time because you're there looking at the whole enchilada. Well, in the same way, God sees all things in, in time and space. He's outside of time and space. So, you know, God, in the beginning, God, you know, created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and, be, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So for God to come out of his Eternal now is what the theologians call that, by the way, outside of time and space. For God to exit eternal now and come into humanity where we're limited to time and space, um, is it possible that the one God in his three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit can dwell in those different dimensions and space and time however he wishes? So in some ways you might say, well, Jesus then was talking to himself. In some ways you could say that. But I do think there's something we have to remember about Jesus. Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. So for Jesus to be tempted, he had to feel temptation. Remember that? Um, and so Jesus willingly became limited. Um, he wasn't limited, but he was willing to become limited uh, to time and space. And also the stresses and the things that we feel. He had just been attacked by the religious leaders and all the Pharisees and, and the you know, lawyers that were with them, if you remember that. And now Jesus, we find him going off privately and praying. I wonder if that's what we should do when we get stressed out. Do you think Jesus might be doing this as a bit of an example for us? He, he, I believe he's not just doing it for the appearance. I believe he, Jesus, being tempted. I wonder if Jesus was tempted, you know, when they asked them the question, what are your disciples doing eating corn on the Sabbath day? Was Jesus tempted to just make little pink mists out of each one of their heads? <laughs> Pop them like zits? That'd be my temptation. Those jerks. 
But Jesus didn't do that. That's amazing. It's amazing that Jesus was, was patient with them. And, and I, one thing I mentioned on Sunday is he very respectfully answered all their questions. Even though they have ill intentions and they wanna kill him, he still very nicely answers their questions. Um, but I wonder how he did that. Well, he was Jesus. He put aside his you know, humanity and just became God. And that's not what happened. He was tempted in all points like as we. I wonder if he was tempted to make them explode. But what, what kept him on track? Jesus gave us the perfect model how to behave. And I, I think this is a key that we might miss. Verse 12, you know, you might just kind of see, oh, this is kind of an important part of Jesus's ministry. Oh, and he takes some time to pray. Yeah, whatever. No, that's the whole thing. The way Jesus was able to do all these things yet without sin is he was equipped and he was ready. And the, one of the things that made him ready to face these people without sinning is because he went off into a, a, a deserted place uh, uh, in the mountains there and continued all night in prayer to God. Why pray? Um, by the way, that's a good question to ask. You know, why should Christians pray? Um, uh, you know, it, one thing I've noticed if you're a hardcore, you know, Calvinist or, or you know, super God sovereignty, which I, I believe in God sovereignty, I'm not arguing with y'all. I agree. But one of the things I've noticed some of the hardcore sovereignty people do is they say, well, things are gonna work out the way God is sovereign. It's all gonna work out God. So why pray? It's like there's an attitude that develops if you're not careful. That says, well, it's all gonna work out the way God's gonna do it. God ordained, preordained it, you know, it's whatever. Uh, so why pray? Well, that's a good question since you asked. Here's the first answer I would give. Why pray? Um, the Bible tells us to pray. First uh, Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing for this is the will of God concerning you. Um, uh, and everything give thanks. If, you know, all of this is what the Bible says. So the Bible, that's just one verse. There's uh, hundreds of verses that tell you and me that we should be people of prayer. So, you know, even though God's sovereign and he's, he's preordained and predestinated and divinely elected and all those things that we believe, still the Bible tells us to pray. Um, the second notion, by the way, uh, is um, it's a privilege for us to pray. Um, what a privilege. You get to talk to God. Is that a privilege? That you and I get to talk to God, the creator and sustainer of all things. We get to talk to him. Um, you know, uh, and, and he cares about us, actually. He wants to hear our prayers. See, one of the temptations I've noticed with people say, well, God doesn't care about my prayers, so I'm just a nobody. So, you know, he might listen to, you know, the Pope's prayers or some of the, you know, big guns, you know, spiritually. Uh, but my prayers, I don't know. Nope, that's not true. Remember, God's infinite. He's not spread thin. He, he doesn't have, it's not that he doesn't have time for you or anything like that. But first Peter chapter five, verse seven, we're told, you know, casting all your cares upon him for he cares for you. The Lord cares about you. And he, he wants to hear prayers as it turns out. Jeremiah 29, 12 through 13. Then shall you call upon me, you shall go and pray unto me and I will hearken unto you and you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. What a promise. If you're praying and seeking the Lord, searching for the Lord with all your heart, you will find me. That, that's one of the great promises of the word. I, I find that there's people that are secularist atheists, but if they, if they are truly seeking God, if they don't believe in God, but they, they say, well, if there really is a God that I'm gonna truly seek, then I'm confident they'll find them because the Lord just says, if you seek me with all your heart, then you will find me. It's a promise of God's word. So why pray? The Bible tells us to pray. It's a huge privilege to pray. Um, and then thirdly, there's power in prayer. Um, one of the things that we, I think, sometimes mistake, uh, you know, we, we think that 
our prayers are powerful to change things. But that's not really the thing. Um, God is powerful. But see, then the, some of you are like, yeah, but God never changes. Uh, in Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord, I never change. So I can't get God to change his mind. Well, there's, there's an, again, we gotta get out of time and space and all this other stuff, that, you know, the, the limitations. Remember when um, Moses forgot to circumcise um, his son and um, God says, I'm gonna kill Moses. Do you remember that? Uh, you're like, wow, what happened? You're reading this happy little story about the exodus of Egypt. All of a sudden, he, I'm gonna kill Moses because he didn't circumcise his son. And so Zipporah comes and circumcises her son with a sharp rock and then throws the foreskin at Moses, said, a bloody husband art thou to me. Uh, and, and then it says, and God didn't kill Moses. And then we went back into the happy little story. You're like, <laughs> what was that all about, man? What a weird thing in the Bible. Um, well, that's something where God says, I'm gonna do this, but he didn't. Or what about the time when the children of Israel were complaining and murmuring against Moses and the Lord said, step aside, Moses, I'm gonna make of you a mighty nation. Forget Abraham and forget the Jews. I'm gonna make of you a mighty nation and step aside, I'm gonna fry them all. And if I were Moses, I would have like, okay, I would have run over there. Let him, I, I think I'm clear, Lord, go ahead, fry them. You're like, oh no, that's our leader, <laughs> Pastor Brett. Um, I mean, that, that, you, you can't blame Moses if he feels that way, but he doesn't. In fact, Moses prays on behalf of those stinkers, the people, and says, not so, Lord. Um, and he reminds the Lord like the Lord needed reminding, but I wonder if sometimes when we remind the Lord of stuff, if it's actually just us reminding ourselves of what the Lord promised. Because Moses says, you promised to bring these people out of Egypt and they're your people, an everlasting covenant. And he said, the enemies of God and the enemies of the Jews, like the Egyptians and what have you, they'll, they'll you know, make fun and they'll say the God of the Jews are of no power. Like Moses begins to intercede on behalf of the people. And so it says, and the King James is even kind of hard. And the Lord repented of the evil that he was going to do against the, the people of Israel. He repented, did God change? Well, the word repent is not the best translation there. The word is relent. The Lord relented. It's like he was said, I'm gonna go this direction. And then he relents. And, uh, and you say, well, man, that sounds like God changed his mind. Um, here's the question. Who put it in the heart of Moses to pray and intercede on behalf of those people? God did that. Because um, I'm pretty sure Moses didn't come up with that. Remember when Moses was in his flesh, he said, you rebels, must we fetch? Remember, that's more the Moses. But he, he kind of messed up that time. But this time, there was something the Lord put in his heart to, to intercede on behalf of the people. And guess what? I, I believe God and his omniscience knew that Moses was gonna intercede and Moses was gonna pray and the Lord, the Lord knew exactly what was going on. But Moses's prayer does play into the whole story in the same way your prayer will pray, play into your story. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God has a plan and a purpose and he knows what he's gonna do and he knows the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end. He knows all those things. But he still asks us to pray and, and it does seem to me as you read the Bible, there's, prayer, there's power in prayer. Um, you know, and, and so you know, that's kind of an important thing to, to remember. Jeremiah 33, three says, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. One of the great parts of prayer is revelation. The Lord, as you're praying, the Lord reveals things to you that you need to know. Uh, ask Daniel uh, as he prayed. Every time Daniel prayed a beautiful prayer to the Lord, the Lord revealed something powerful to Daniel. So prayer is huge and Jesus did it. So you and I should probably follow his lead. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well,
Back to Luke chapter six, uh, verse 13. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose 12, whom also he named apostles. Hey, what's the difference between an apostle and a disciple? Have you ever wondered that? Um, and he chose 12 of these guys. What's the difference between the you know, disciples and apostles? Is it just a, a synonym is the same, same word? No, they're actually different. Um, I like that he chose 12. When I was at a, a, um, the garden tomb in Jerusalem, this little old British guy, the British guys that give the tours are awesome. These little old British dudes, they're retired guys from England giving tours of the garden tomb because the British found this tomb archeologically years and years ago. But um, this little British guy, he said, and he chose, uh, he, they measured out you know, something and he was talking about leaders, but he said, you know, if the Lord wanted us to use the decimal system, or the, the uh, pardon me, um, you know, the metric system, he said he would have chosen 10 disciples rather than 12. And I was like, <laughs> that's great, I like that. Uh, yeah, metric system, bah humbug. Um, <laughs> But 12 is a reoccurring number in the Bible. We see it, uh, it it's, uh, you know how the numbers have types and, and meanings? Well, the number 12 is often linked to government and it's also linked to obviously Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, 12 is the number of government, tribes. Um, there's a lot of number 12 things, the number of the showbread, which matches the 12 tribes. Um, Jesus was 12 when he taught at the temple. Interestingly enough, the woman had this issue of blood for 12 years. There were 12 gates in Revelation 21. Uh, when we talk about the, the new Jerusalem, um, 12 angels, 12 foundations. Like it, there's 12 is a big deal. So keep your antenna up but it all speaks of God's uh, government and the people of Israel, it's all linked to the number 12. So the two words used here, uh, disciple and apostle, what do they mean? Well, the word disciple, the Greek word is mathetes, which means a learner, a pupil, one who's taught or instructed, one who's disciplined in studying. So a um, mathetes, mathetes, what uh, it doesn't mean that an apostle, it's almost like you'd say, before you could be an apostle, you have to be a disciple. Um, you can't be a, an apostle without being a disciple, but you can be a disciple without being an apostle. Um, question, how many disciples were there in the New Testament? Some of you say, well, bro, you just said 12. Well, no, there were 12 apostles, but there were many disciples. In fact, one case, we have a group of 70 that were there. In another case, we have a group of 100 disciples that were there, um, people Jesus we're teaching. It's like people said, man, we want to follow Jesus. And Jesus said, follow me. And he started teaching them. They were all disciples, being taught, instructed, uh, disciplined in studying. The word apostle is uh, the Greek word uh, apostolos, apostolos, which means a delegate messenger, one, and this is the key, one sent forth with orders. Um, the, the, the word apostolos or apostle means sent out one. Now, it's important to... Um, see the, what the, the, the word apostle means as far as um, there's different layers of this. And I'm just gonna give you the quick version of this. Um, there is an ultimate apostle uh, and there's only one of those and that's Jesus. Why would we call Jesus an apostle? Anybody? Because he was sent by God, you know, um, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him. Jesus was sent by God the Father, which is kind of an interesting, that's why we call Jesus sort of the ultimate apostle. But then there was the, um, the, the 12 that we might uh, say is the next level. You could say three, Peter, James, and John. Um, and then, but, but the 12, it kind of goes into the, um, 
you know, first century apostles that are kind of important. And they were people directly sent by Jesus. Jesus sent them directly. Um, and there's 12 of those. Some people argue there might be 13. Does anybody know why there'd be 13? Paul, correct. Um, and so um, when Paul was, you say, but Paul wasn't sent by Jesus, but he was, do you remember? They're on the road to Damascus. Um, he, you know, he says, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who art thou? He says, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. So Jesus himself appeared to Paul the apostle and sent him just like the other disciples, even though Jesus had long resurrected and ascended into heaven after long before Paul came on the scene. Um, so you say, okay, Brett, so maybe 12, 13 apostles, does it end there? Um, well, no, beyond that, there were, uh, beyond the 12, there were several others in the Bible that were referred to as apostles. Barnabas is re referred to as an apostle in Acts 13.2 and Acts 14.14. 14. Uh, so we know Barnabas, Barnabas was sent out. So what that starts to tell us is, could it be that the apostles then sent out other guys so the ones, there's the, there's the ultimate apostle, Jesus. Then there were people, the apostles that were sent by Jesus himself. That's kind of the next tier. But then the next tier after that would be anyone sent out by apostles. Um, and it's not just Barnabas, Andronicus and Junius were probably identified as apostles. If you look at Romans 16, seven, in the original language, they're probably being referred to as apostles. Um, the same Greek word apostle, apostolos, is used to refer to Titus, uh, in 2 Corinthians 8, 23, and also Epaphroditus in uh, Philippians 2, 25. So there, there's room for others being apostles uh, in the Bible that were sent out by the apostles of the 12 or 13, depending on your number. Um, so do we stop there? Well, no, because as it turns out, I believe the last tier to talk about, um, and I wouldn't say we're on the same plane as Jesus, of course, or even the 12, or even the ones sent out by the first century guys who were apostles. But there does seem to be uh, another group, and that's us. We're called sort of to be apostles. If you remember John 15, 16, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and have ordained you, Jesus says, that you should go and bring forth fruit, that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Um, and then Mark 16, 15, and he said to them, go you, into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's to all of us. So we have been sent out, if you would, by Jesus as well. And that's why you might be able to say we're apostles. Um, so what is your role as an apostle? You're, it's this, to go preach the gospel to every creature. It's not to be a weirdo walking around in a robe saying, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's people that do that. There's, there's people that go around on church tours saying, I'm an apostle. And, um, and then they make money and they go and raise money and they do you know, weird things and sort of float when they walk and act weird. You don't have to do that. that just be a normal person, uh, a testimony and a witness to, of Jesus Christ being sent out to seek and save, even as Jesus was sent out. Um, and so that's an important thing. I believe there, that we're, we all are called to apostleship in that way, being sent by the Lord. So those are the tiers of apostleship you should know about. Well, we pick it up in verse 14. These apostles then are listed. Verse 14, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, uh, which was you know, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew. Now you say Bartholomew? Um, Bartholomew, 
who is that guy? Well, um, it's interesting. One of the things that gets a little tricky when you're reading the Bible is you'll, you'll see lists of names and they're not, they don't always match. And you're like, oh, contradiction of the Bible. The Bible's full of contradictions. Your pipe puffing cardigan sweater wearing professors will declare to the 18 year old kid uh, as he's coming out of Christian school into the secular college and the kids, oh, my faith is shaken. The Bible's contradiction. Um, it's so ridiculous. Um, it, um, it was very common in uh, first century times to have dual names. Um, what was the reason for that? Well, this is something we as Americans don't really uh, acknowledge or have uh, anything similar, but um, it was, it was uh, common to have sort of a, a Greek identification, but also there were those who wanted more of a Christian identification. Um, Hellenism uh, had sort of taken over the world at that time, the Greek world worldview, architecture, Hellenism was a huge deal. Um, but the idea of being Hellenistic was the, it's kind of the opposite of being a Christian. Um, it's like being really worldly today uh, as being like the Greek uh, and today being a Christian, is, it sets you aside. So um, a lot of times they would give different names. That's why Jesus said, you, you're called Simon, but your name's gonna be Peter, which means, you know, um, little rock or little stone, pebble. That's kind of the idea there. And so um, um, the dual names, some were the Greek name, others were Christian names. Um, by the way, when you go to Vanuatu, where we have um, a church, uh, it's a, basically Athe Creek in the jungle at the South Pacific. It's a great little church down there in the jungle of the South Pacific. And they, um, when I've visited Vanuatu, a lot of the Christians there, they all have Bible names. Uh, and it cracks me up because they name each other after like characters that are sort of familiar. I, I'd go up to this guy and I'd say, hey, what's your name? And he said, my name is Job. And uh, I'd ask him, like, why did he get the name Job? Oh, he's gone through a lot of trouble. I was like, oh, okay. And then there's a little short guy and I said, what's your name? Zacchaeus. Oh, well, that makes sense. It's like, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, it's like the, the Nivanawatu people, uh, they change their names to Christian names because some of them have pagan names from their tribal paganism and they don't wanna really be associated in that way. Um, by the way, did you know when we get to heaven, I think we get a new name? Are you guys excited about that? I wanna know what my new name is uh, because my old name, well, it's pretty worn out. I've, I've made some bad decisions. My, the, the name Brett has some associations that I'd like to forget. But when I get to heaven, I'm gonna be given a new name, Re uh, Revelation 2.17. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, that's us. To him that overcomes, I will give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone and in the, white, uh, in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saying he that receives it. So you're gonna get a name that only you're gonna know about at least for that moment. Uh, who knows, what? Uh, wanna know what the white stone is? Listen to our Revelation study uh, that was done a few years back. Um, but uh, what will your name be? Uh, I wonder if your name, your new name that's on the white stone, I wonder if that's gonna have to do with the Bema Seat judgment of Christ. Like how you lived on this earth. Uh, you know, remember the Bema Seat is not a judgment whether you get to heaven or not. Um, you and I are, Jesus was judged on the cross. The world will be judged at the great white throne. We'll be judged at the Bema seat, not for whether we're saved, but the rewards we'll receive for eternity. And one of those uh, rewards, it seems, is a new name that's gonna be written that nobody knows. So uh, back to the names of these guys. Luke uses names that are not always the same as Matthew or Mark, um, but are the same guys. So Bartholomew is none other than Nathaniel, uh, John 1:45. same guy. Um, Simon is Peter, of course. And there's a few others. In fact, let's keep reading verse 15. 
Matthew, what's another name for Matthew, anybody? Levi, tax collector. And Thomas, uh, James, the son of Altheus, and Simon called Zelotes, which was a zealot. Um, and Judas, verse 16, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which was the traitor. Uh, do you ever feel sorry for the guy named Judas that's not the Judas? It's like, oh, you're, you're a disciple, your name's Judas? Oh, no, no, I'm not that Judas. Like, like did he have to defend himself? No, I'm not Judas Iscariot. Uh, um, no, uh, in fact, um, the, bad luck for Judas to have the same name, but um, this Judas is also called Thaddeus in some of the other texts. Uh, by the way, I think I'd stick with Thaddeus if I were Judas. Um, Judas is not a name as much I see uh, mothers give to their names. Not a Bible name that you often see. Oh, let's name him Judas. Or let's name her Jezebel. Uh, like there's, <laughs> there's some names that are almost like uh, off, off uh, not a great idea. But, um, but anyway, we've done larger studies on these disciples. Um, and, and probably one of the main things I always like to kind of Think about at this moment when Jesus calls these 12. These are not the guys I would have chosen. I would have looked for wealthy guys. I would have looked for really cool leaders and guys that were smart and had great ability. Um, maybe a few tactical bodyguards, you know, uh, some intellectuals that could duel with the Pharisees. Um, but do you remember in Acts chapter four, verse 13, when the Sanhedrin looked at these apostles after Jesus died, rose again and ascended into heaven, um, the, the Sanhedrin looked at his disciples and they marveled that they were unlearned and ignorant men. That cracks me up. Jesus chose these unlearned and ignorant men. I, I wonder if they smelled like fish. You know, at least Peter, James, and John. Like, man, whew, boy, these disciples. Wow, why did Jesus choose these guys? Um, I believe he chose them for the same reason he chooses you and me and sends us. Um, it's 1 Corinthians one twenty seven. but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, which the, the disciples did when they were saying they're unlearned and ignorant men, but they marveled and took note that they had been with Jesus. There was something about the disciples. There was a weightiness after the resurrection and ascension. The disciples had a weightiness to them. It wasn't because they were Harvard grads. It's because they'd spent time with Jesus, which is the same for you and me. The only reason we have any weight or heft to what we're saying is because our link to Jesus. So he uses the weak, and God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the things which are mighty. And I love how the Lord can use all of us, no matter who you are and how lack you are in skills and giftings. Uh, and I, I love that we all have an opportunity to be used by the Lord. And just be open to that. Um, you know, I think that's the key. When you're a Christian, you're thinking, well, I don't have enough skill to do that. I don't know the Bible well enough. Well, who does? You know, I didn't start off just saying, I'm so smart in the Bible, I'm gonna teach the Bible. Fortunately, I started when I was so dumb that I didn't know how dumb I was. Um, I started when I was 12 years old teaching. Uh, every single Sunday I taught. Every, from the time I was 12 years old to this present moment, I have taught pretty much every Sunday of my life since 12 um, I started teaching a first grade class when I was 12 years old and um, nobody was smart enough to not let me go in there and I wasn't smart enough to do it. But you, you wanna know the quickest ways to, to learn the Bible is to start teaching the Bible. Like look for an opportunity, get a Friday men's study going at a coffee shop somewhere with two or three guys that are friends of yours and start just teaching the Bible. 
And uh, how do you learn? You, you, know, you read, you learn, you read the scriptures, you pray, you jot down notes. You can look and stand on the shoulders of other guys and read commentaries and, and, and hear what other you know, great men uh, have preached over the centuries about, about the word of God. And, and there's, it's just such a great privilege to be able to, to start teaching the word. And I'll tell you, that's the fastest way to start learning the Bible. Um, I remember when I was just listening as a 10 year old, and I, and I knew the stories, like I'd sit in the sermons of the pastors and churches that I went to, and I'm like, yeah, I know the story. Um, and I think I'd know it, but it wasn't until I started teaching the stories, I was like, now how did that go again? Ooh, I gotta get the details down. And what scripture was that? Oh yeah, you know, like it, it's, it starts to light a fire uh, under you once you start doing it. So uh, these guys were ill-qualified. They were also illogical choices, if you ask me. But Jesus chose these guys, a tax collector and a zealot. Um, what a crack up, you know, can you imagine a tax collector and a zealot? Like you're on the same team. Uh, the zealots hated tax collectors. A zealot was known to murder tax collectors. I wonder if Simon the zealot was like, yeah, as soon as Jesus is not looking, I'm gonna kill Matthew. Like that would have been pretty normal in those days. The zealots were crazy. Um, uh, but they were sort of right too, in the sense that the Romans, the zealots wanted to off the Romans. They were sick of being under the iron fist of Rome. And the zealots were uh, saying anything having to do with Rome and the worst of the worst would be Jews helping Rome uh, with their plight. And that's what the Matthew, the tax collector was. So, so it's like Jesus chose like the least logical guys to be hanging out together. Um, and guess what? That's what happens at Athey Creek too that Jesus chose the least logical people to put in this room tonight. Um, we've, we come from all different walks of life. We all have different personalities. We all have different skill sets and talents and giftings. But the Lord says, ah, that's, that's my church. And I love my church and I'm gonna use my church. Others say, I can't believe those people. They're not like me. Uh, you, uh, the mature Christian says, good. We don't want everybody like you. We have enough of you. But it's great when you see the variables in the church, you know, and, and the way they work out. I remember as a pastor, I had a, uh, when I first became a licensed and ordained minister, you know, I was like 18 years old. Uh, they licensed and ordained. I could marry and bury and stuff like that. But, um, but I remember, you know, had a kind of a picture in my mind what a pastor was. And I was one of the early pastors at a church that started in my house, grew from, you know, you know 10 people to like 6,000 people. Um, and, you know, I was a young pastor, but I remember when other pastors started coming out, I think, I don't know if that's a pastor. Because I had a view in my mind what a pastor was. There was, there was one guy um, that good, became a really good friend of mine and uh, now he's in heaven. But uh, my buddy, Greg Eckler, I remember I admired him because he was the best drummer I'd ever known and have ever known to this day, an amazing drummer. Um, he played for all kinds of people. He played backup drummer for the band Cream, if you remember them. And, and he played for, uh, Daryl Mansfield was one of his things in the Christian world. He played drums for him and played for uh, Sammy Hagar and uh, others, people you'd know, like famous drummer. Um, but I remember when Greg came to our church and, uh, and, and um, uh, the, my pastor made him one of the pastors. And we're like, he's a really good drummer, but a pastor. Like all of us pastors, we'd get up at 5 a.m. and go to morning worship and we would, you know, work and do all these hours and we'd, you know, we, we were ministering and studying the scriptures and Greg would sleep in until 10 a.m. He was a rock and roller, you know, he, he was used to the rock and roll lifestyle and he'd sleep in and he'd stumble in and he'd have his hood up and he'd be all tired and we're like, who is this guy? He, he's not pastoral material. Um, but as it turned out, the Lord had to kind of correct me on that one. 
uh, because he had a very specific kind of ministry. He ended up ministering to a unique group of people and, and we had a, a ministry that Greg really got going called the One Step Program. And, uh, you know, as opposed to the 12 steps. And the one step is Jesus. Uh, it's all Jesus, uh, one step program. And, he, and, and so he had all the alcoholics and addicted people. And, uh, you know, they all just came to his meetings and he'd share the word. And he, he wasn't your typical pastor, but he really was shepherding and pastoring people in a way that was kind of profound. Um, and often people that wouldn't listen to the, the kid like me who grew up in a Christian home, never drank beer ever in my life, uh, you know, never did anything, you know, too rebellious or anything bad, you know, like the group that hung around Greg, they were like, oh, that's great for Brett, but he, he doesn't relate to me. Uh, I'm a heroin addict. Uh, I'm a prostitute. I'm a, like, like Greg just, like, people kind of were drawn to him. And, you know, it's, it's cool when you start realizing the body of Christ is very diverse and the Lord uses different people in different ways. And it's wise to be the person to say, so they're different than I am. That doesn't make it bad. That just means the Lord could use them differently. Um, different skill sets, different people. It's a huge mistake when you try to make everybody like you in the church because that's not a, an effective church. So, um, but also don't think the Lord can't use you because you're different than everybody else around you. Uh, don't don't um, discount others because they're different. I look at this group of disciples and I think, wow, Jesus chose a diverse bunch. Um, but that picks us up back into verse 17. It says, and he came down with them and stood in the plain. And the company of his disciples and a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem came from the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Where is he doing this? Anybody? In the plain. The plane in Spain flows, right? You, not, not the airplane, you're thinking Joseph Biden talking to the press last week, if you saw that. Um, no, no, he wasn't in the plane. Um, he was, he's on the plane. Like, uh, and, and you say, but what are you making? There's a reason, check it out, uh, that I'm making a big deal of that. It says in verse 18, they that were vexed with unclean spirits, they that, uh, and they were healed, and the whole multitude sought to touch him uh, for there went virtue out of him and healed them all. Remember when the woman with the issue of blood in Matthew's gospel touched him and he said, somebody touched me. And they're like, come on, Jesus, everybody's thronging. There's people elbow to elbow. Like, what are you talking about? And he says, no, 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 somebody touched me and virtue left me. Isn't that interesting that, what does that mean? That virtue had departed out of Jesus. Jesus perceived something left him when there was, when you're ministering, I think there is a thing that happens when you're, it's different than if you're doing anything else. Ministry is you're pouring your heart, soul, life, love into other believers or non-believers trying to share the gospel. There's something different about what leaves your body or leaves you when you're doing that kind of work. I think there is something different there. I'm not sure exactly how to explain it, um, but it's just kind of there. Those of you that do ministry stuff, you know what I'm talking about. And I almost wonder if that's part of what Jesus is saying. Every time he'd healed somebody, Virtue had gone from him. Um, uh, that, that makes you wonder, what did he feel like at the end of a day of healing tons of people? Well, um, now, it's, it, you know, Jesus was able to heal all in this case. Now, some people will make the argument that people will always be healed. If you're a person of faith, you'll be healed. Have you ever heard that argument? Um, if, unless you have enough faith, uh, you'll be healed every single time. And, um, and if, if you're one who says that, you don't know your Bible very well. 
Paul prayed for an infirmity of his flesh. That's what it's called, thorn in his flesh, an infirmity that he had. And he prayed three times and the Lord said, Paul, I'm not gonna heal you of that. That's something you're gonna live with. Um, Timothy had a stomach condition. Did Paul say, be healed in the name of Jesus? Is that what he did? No, he said, what did he say? Drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. Um, this has come from a guy who just people touched his sweatbands and they were healed. But he didn't always heal uh, everyone. Um, but in this case, Jesus heals everybody. Now, Jesus can do that. He can heal everybody that comes to him at any time because he's God in the flesh. But one thing I wanna, you know, there's, there's whole churches and groups out there, you know, Hogwarts for Christian, if you know what I'm talking about, where basically uh, you can always heal people and it's always, always, and unless they're being healed, there's people lacking of faith. And I've noticed when those pastors and leaders of those churches aren't healed or don't see a healing, in, uh, then, then they, kinda, they just kind of brush it under the rug and don't talk about it. Um, it's kind of an interesting thing uh, because it doesn't always work for them because guess what? The Lord, I, I believe the Lord will heal his people 100% of the time. The question is when? Is it right now, miraculously? I've seen that, the Lord does that. Heal cancer right now. Um, and it's a miraculous, beautiful healing. The second way I've seen the Lord heal is through doctors and medicine. It's a miraculous healing still, using medicine and doctors. Um, the third mode of healing is when you die, you will ultimately be healed. And you think, well, that's cheap, that's just a cheap way out. No, it's the best way out. When you die, you, all your infirmities will be gone, you're given a new body, and you're gonna be healthy as a horse when you get to heaven. Uh, and that's gonna be glor glorious, that's the ultimate healing. So yes, every time the Lord heals, the question is when? And we are to submit to his will. That's why we need to pray with Jesus's words, not my will, but thy will. So you can pray the prayer of faith. Lord, I believe you are able to heal and pray for healing, whether it's a cold or cancer. Have you ever noticed how Christians, we sort of put degrees on healing. Uh, Pastor Brett, I got a cold. Okay, let's pray. Lord, just bless my brother for his cold. Help him feel better, amen. And then somebody comes up, Brett, I got cancer. Oh Lord, we've come to thee, uh, sustainer and creator of all things. Like, why do we pray differently for a cold and cancer? Is one harder for God than the other? Do we have to gyrate for any reason? Do gyrations make God hear our prayers more? Oh, we mess up, you know, yeah, fervent prayer of a righteous man, but does gyration make up fervent prayer? Oh, we're just gonna, uh, like, like we don't have to do that stuff. That's just man-made goofiness. Be careful with that. Um, we, can, we can pray for healing, but we also say, Lord, your name is Jehovah Rapa, the God who heals, the great physician, that's who you are. Um, but we also pray, Lord, your will, your timing, your purpose be done. And be glad in any way that it comes out. And don't put a guilt trip on somebody. Well, you're not healed yet, so you must not have a, enough faith. That's, that's where it gets real ugly. Don't, don't do that. Well, um, you say, Brett, why, why did you make a big deal out of the plane? Um, well, this, this now notice from verse 20 um, and, uh, and for the next you know, page and a half, they're red letters. So this is a sermon. Is it a sermon on the Mount? Is this Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount? Some people believe so. There are some similarities, but I'm gonna say no. This is the sermon on the plane. Good. Uh, that, that's why I mentioned that, because it is a different place. This is a different place, and it's a different group of people um, within a different time period, a different part of Jesus's ministry. Um, uh, by the way, some who wish to assault you know, the accuracy of the Bible try to use these variations between these two sermons as proof that there's contradictions in the Bible. 
I believe these are two separate sermons. There's some similar themes, but to different people. The Sermon on the Mount was delivered to the, the apostles, the 12 disciples, um, and it's very Jewish. There's a huge difference. The, the Sermon on the Mount is very Jewish. Um, remember, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. That was a very Jewish thing to say. Um, but Luke's sermon here has some common themes as the Sermon on the Mount, but it's very Gentile-ish, even as Luke is talking to the Greeks. Uh, so there's different things said. Um, you know, uh, Sermon on the Mount, Jewish laws and traditions are referred to. Luke's text is more toward the Greeks. Uh, logistically, Matthew says he's on the um, mountain. Luke says he's on the plain. Uh, would Jesus speak a similar sermon and re reuse a teaching? Yes. This is, makes me glad as a person who does five teachings every weekend um, that are technically supposed to be the same. I don't know if you guys ever noticed, sometimes my sermons on the five sermons are all the same. Sometimes they vary. I've done Sundays where they're totally different, uh, not even sort of related um, because the Lord changes things up, you know, and you have to be sensitive to those things. Um, but, um, but who was the sermon given to? Uh, the 12 disciples in Matthew. And this is a big group of people from all over Tyre and Zidon, it says in our text here. We'll see, uh, or it says that right there in our text, verse 17. Um, so it's a different crowd. It's a different audience. Um, other differences, um, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is three chapters of red letters, huge. It's a long sermon. The Sermon on the Plain is half a chapter. Um, the Sermon on the Mount has nine Beatitudes. The Sermon on the Plain has four Beatitudes and they're slightly different than the others. Uh, the Sermon on the Plain includes woes, which uh, will correlate to the blessings, uh, the Beatitudes, um, but, there, but there's not, not the same woes in the Sermon on the Mount. So I think they're two different sermons with similar themes, but to totally different people. Uh, so let's read verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes uh, on his disciples and said, blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Okay, for you Bible people, what's the biggest difference you notice already about this? Blessed be the poor. What's missing from this picture? Poor in spirit. Is there a difference between someone who's poor in spirit and somebody who's just poor? There's a big difference. Uh, we're not just, you know, in, in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, uh, there, he's talking about poor in spirit. Um, but in this account, it's blessed are just the poor. Um, this is already something we should notice is different. The word blessed means happy. Um, so happy are the poor. Do you believe that happy are the poor? You're like, I'm poor and I'm not happy. You know, uh, I know poor people and I know really, really rich people. And I'm pretty sure that if I had to do a sort of informal poll, I think my poorest friends are the happiest and some of my richest friends are the saddest. Um, you know, have you ever traveled the world and seen the attitudes that of, in, in places of third world countries and how children out playing, having a good time and just enjoying life? Even though they're, instead of playing soccer with a soccer ball, they're playing with a cardboard box wadded up into a ball with duct tape and they're having a blast. You go up to Sherwood on the, the, the artificial turf and the kids with their fancy Nike cleats and their fancy outfits and the referees with all the gear and everything's all, and the kids are all like, hey, I'm playing that, you can play soccer, whatever, uh, you know, high hit lawyer, whatever these soccer players, people say. Um, but, but man, our, our uh, sorry, but... <laughs> 
I've seen this up close, uh, you know, uh, in Africa, these little kids out bare feet in gravel playing soccer with great skill, I might add, um, having the time of their lives. And they're not all grouchy and, you know, mom's not bringing the little snacks and, you know, trying to, it's like, it's just like a, a great, they're having a great time. What's going on there? Um, Casey and I were watching uh, years ago, we were watching one of those amazing race shows and we were both kind of struck by something that happened. Uh, you know how they, in Amazing Race, they travel from one country to another just overnight, just they'll do a bunch of stuff. Well, they were in one of the wealthiest, fanciest countries in the world. And, uh, um, and then they, you know, they did their little thing and then they got on a plane and went to one of the poorest countries in the world. And the teams um, that went from the rich country, uh, I think they went, um, it was like, uh, I forget where they were. I think they were um, in like, Dubai, uh, and then they went from there to India, um, where there was poverty, sickness, uh, overpopulation, filth. Um, but as the people were running through those neighborhoods, a bunch of the teams just stopped and started crying. Like it literally hit them from the, going from the really wealthy to suddenly the most in poverty people in the world. And the contrast was overwhelming to them. Um, but I almost wish that everybody could experience that, con that contrast of the wealthy versus the poverty because some of the nicest, sweetest, happiest people I've met are in third world countries that have nothing. Um, but that's an important thing. We're gonna talk about wealth uh, here in a minute. Um, but um, so, so far we already see uh, that, you know, blessed are uh, the, the poor. We're talking about literally poor for yours is the kingdom. Um, you know, in verse um, uh, verse 21, there's another difference. It says, blessed are ye that hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you that weep now, for you shall laugh. See how this is different? Um, by the way, what are people supposed to hunger and thirst for in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount? Um, righteousness. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall see God. Um, but here it just says, blessed are you that hungry are hungry. I'm like, amen, I'm always hungry. Um, but, but, but no, blessed are you which are hungry now. Do you get a sense that Luke's talking about very practical things where the Sermon on the Mount was dealing with very spiritual things. They're two different objectives, but they are sort of linked. It's kind of an interesting compare and contrast. So blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's Matthew. Um, Sermon on the Mount takes on more of a spiritual tone. Um, I'm reminded, you know, I'm hungry and thirsty spiritually. So the psalmist, Psalm 63, one, oh my God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee, my soul thirsts for thee and my flesh longs for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. There's a difference between thirsty spiritual, hungry spiritual versus just in poverty people that are literally hungry. I believe that's what Luke's sermon here on the plane is uh, dealing with the Greeks that are literally poor. And he's got a word for them that's, that's very similar. Um, also, blessed are they which mourn for they shall be comforted. Um, uh, you know, that, that's what Matthew says on the Sermon on the Mount, but it says, blessed are those that weep now for you shall laugh. Um, it's different. Verse 22, it says, blessed are ye that hung, um, pardon me, blessed are ye when men shall hate you and when they shall um, separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the son of man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day 
and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. In other words, um, you know, um, you gotta, it's, it's better to have the, the right perspective. When, people, when you declare yourself a Christian and your friends and family don't want to be around you anymore, what should your response be? Jump for joy, be happy. You're like, what? Thanksgiving's a nightmare, Brett. Uh, no, it's coming, but rejoice when they don't like you because you're a Christian. Uh, that's what it says, blessed are you um, when people hate you for the sake of Christ is the idea that rejoice in that day, leap for joy because uh, your reward is gonna be great in heaven. Speaking of that, uh, having that eternal perspective, Colossians 3, one and two, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God, set your affection on things above and not on things of earth. I think we spend so much time worrying about being poor, but Jesus is saying, blessed are you with your poor. Do you know the, the word peniophobia means? Fear of being poor. Um, but you know, I think the Lord sees that differently. We shouldn't be afraid of being poor. Um, we should be afraid of being rich because the world in its riches, there's all kinds of perils that go along with that. Um, well, verse 24, but woe. Now this is where the woes come. And I'm gonna show you the woes uh, correlate to the blesseds. It's kind of cool. Uh, verse 24, woe unto you that are rich for you have received your consolation. The first uh, blessed was blessed are you that are poor. So see, the, this is a total antithesis of the blesseds, um, which is kind of interesting. Every blessing has a corresponding woe. Um, is there hope for rich people? Not much. Remember Matthew 19, 24. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Um, you know, um, there's a big admonition for those who are wealthy in this world. Um, jot this down in your, uh, in your notes. First uh, Timothy, uh, we don't have time to go over all this tonight, but um, jot this down. First Timothy 6, 6 through 12. Let me just give you a quick reminder. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, it's certain we can carry nothing out. Having food, raiment, let us therewith be content. For they that are rich in this world will fall in temptation and snare and many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil. And then in verse 17, uh, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. The warning is not to poor people. The warning is to rich people. Um, well, boy, Brett, I'm glad I don't have to worry about that. Bill Gates, Elon Musk, they got some work to do. Well, no, as it turns out, you're, you're rich. If you're an American and you live in a house and you have a car, you're the wealthiest people in the world. And we have to be really concerned about that, I think. It's something to be cognizant of, at least. But all that to say, Jesus is, is warning that same warning. Um, verse 27, where were we? No, verse 25. Woe unto you that are full, for you shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Verse 26. Um, woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. See how it's just kind of A, B? Uh, up against the blessed, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. It's kind of an interesting contrast that Jesus is making there. Verse 27, but I say unto you, which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you, 
And unto him that smiteth thee on one cheek, offer the other. And to him that taketh away thy cloak, forbid not to take thy cloak also. Give to every man that asketh thee. And of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. And as you would that men should do unto you, do ye also unto them likewise. Or famously, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, you know, um, this is interesting to me how, <clears throat> you know, uh, there's people that try to equate Christianity and Islam. You know, it's the same, it's all the same God, it's all the same religion, blah, blah, blah. Can I just say it's not? Um, does Quran, the Quran teach to do unto others as you would have them do unto you? No. Um, let me show you. Uh, I've got a bunch of Quranic scriptures and the Quranic scriptures are also called the Satanic scriptures. Uh, you should know that. So I hate even putting them up, but I wanna show them because I'm not making this up. Um, and there's a narrative out there with this pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas movement that's you know, running over the world right now. But this is their Bible. I'm just quoting verses from their Bible. You tell me if this sounds the same thing as Christianity. Um, in in uh, the Quran 551, not to make friendship with the Jews and Christians. By the way, the people, Muslims come and say, Brett, you're quoting from the wrong Quran. This is the trusted Yusuf Ali's translation of the Quran. And if anybody knows uh, Islamic Quranic studies, that's the most trusted and it's taken from the most uh, of all the imams kind of uh, version of the Quran. Um, Kill them, the disbelievers, wherever we find them, uh, 2, 191. Murder them and treat them harshly, uh, 9, 123. Fight uh, and slay the pagans, seize them, beleaguer them, and lie and wait for them in every stratagem. Um, and, uh, let's just keep going. Uh, Allah and his messenger announced that it is acceptable to go back to on our promises or treaties that we make and obligations with pagans and make war on them wherever we find ourselves uh, strong enough to do so. So, you know, a peace treaty with a Muslim nation or, or a peace treaty with, for example, Hamas would never be trusted if you have half a brain because their Quran says you can make treaties and then break them later, which by the way, they've done that in Islamic history for um, centuries now. Um, the Quran in 914, our God tells us to fight the unbelievers and he will punish them by our hands, uh, cover them with shame and help us uh, to uh, victory over them, 914. Um, uh, another bit, it says that the non-believers will go to hell and drink boiling water, uh, 14.7. It asks the Muslims to slay or crucify or cut the hands and feet of the unbelievers that they be expelled from the land with disgrace and that they shall have great punishment in the world hereafter. This is amazing to me that, you know, some of our uh, Generation Z college students are protesting by the tens of thousands, calling the Israelis ethnic cleansers or genocidal. Um, they've just listened to just horrible college professors, cardigan, these are the cardigan sweater pipe puffing professors with just total wrong information. Um, and you need to know your history. Um, and the sad thing is so many people don't know the history or if you say, Brett, I know the history and you're, you're, you have a, you're making a case that there's this ancient Palestinian people, I'm so embarrassed for you. There was never an ancient Palestinian people except for the group called the Philistines, which were a Syrophoenician people that came by ships across the Mediterranean to settle in the Southern part of Israel. They became extinct not long after Solomon, King Solomon. The Philistines became a, a thing of the past. There are no Philistines. It was the Romans who called 
the area of Israel, which was called Israel, um, Palestina, because they wanted to spite the Jews with their ancient, you know, extinct enemy, the Philistines. In, in 1924, uh, the Jews lived in Palestine along with Arabs. How did they get there, by the way? Zionism. But they came and bought, purchased much of the land from the Bedouins and the Arabs that were sparsely scattered all over Israel. How many of us can say we purchased our land from the previous people? The Jews are one of the few people on earth who can say that largely they purchased most of the land that they have. Um, other parts of it was in defending their land. They gained other lands, and, but being occupiers and uh, putting the Palestinians, who are actually mostly Jordanians, by the way. If you trace the true Palestinians, they're Jordanians. And if you wanna see a horribly terrible situation, go to the Palestinian refugee camps in Jordan. I've been there. It's way worse. I would rather be a Palestinian in Israel by far than to be a Palestinian in Jordan, the country of their nativity. Um, study the history. No, don't be duped. Just because CNN or just because your college professor told you a bunch of lies about that, there's a huge rhetoric out there that's being believed. It shouldn't shock us. The Bible says that uh, there's gonna be a great deception that will go over the whole earth in the last days. And one of those deceptions is gonna be particularly concerning Israel. We shouldn't be shocked, but I shouldn't be talking about this. I'm running out of time. Let's quickly, <laughs> quickly, verse 32. Um, for if you love them which love you, what thank have ye for sinners that also love them? Um, and if you do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also do even the same. And if you lend to them of whom you hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again, but love your enemies, do good, to, uh, do good and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great, and you shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Does that sound like the Quran? Total antithesis of the Quran. Do good to those things, those people that you call enemies. Don't chop their hands and heads off. Um, when you loan money, don't expect to get anything back. By the way, this might be a word for some of you guys. If you've loaned money and somebody owes you money and you're bitter in your heart because of that, can I give you a, here's a great idea. Forgive them of their debt. Yeah, but Brett, they owe me. That's between them and God and God will deal with that. But don't let your heart be bitter. Um, better to forgive and say, you know what? Write them a note and say, I love you. And obviously you haven't been able to pay me back, but I'm gonna forgive you of that debt because you know what? I'm a Christian and I, Jesus has been so good to me. I'm just gonna forgive you of that debt. Um, any sinner can charge interest and you know, call the debtor collectors and all that stuff, but it's a Christian who's forgiving like the Lord has been for us. Aren't you glad the Lord did that with our debt? He paid our debt and let us off. Um, that's what we as Christians, he sets a super, super high bar to be merciful. In fact, look at verse 36. Be ye therefore merciful as your father also is merciful. Judge not and you shall not be judged. Condemn not and you shall not be condemned. Forgive and you shall be forgiven. Um, you know, this, this, is, uh, this is huge. It reminds me of Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ. And by grace you are saved. Rich means God's mercy is not miserly. 
but magnanimous. God is merciful, kind, big-hearted, and gives out mercifully. Don't be stingy with your forgiveness, but be big-hearted and don't judge lest you also be judged. This is, by the way, speaking of spiritual judgment, in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, it says, judge not lest you be judged, but in the same chapter says, but we are to inspect the fruit and whether it's good fruit or bad fruit. So we are fruit inspectors. Um, what's the difference, judging a fruit or judging a person's life? Um, one's judging for identification, another is judging for condemnation. You and I are not to judge people to condemnation. We are to judge people to identify, are they of the Lord, are they bringing good fruit? And that's um, Matthew seven sixteen, where it says you'll know them by their fruits. Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged. It's not a contradiction, it has to do with what you're doing. Verse 38, give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. People think this is a good sermon on tithing. Give money, give till it hurts, put it in the bucket or throw it in the street. Like what, what, what's this, all, is that what this is about? I don't believe this. We were talking about money earlier, but that's not what we're talking about. And if you read Matthew's account of the same kind of idea, what are we talking about when it says give and it shall be given to you? What are we talking, is we talking about money? No, it's another M word. What's the M? Mercy, give mercy and it shall be given to you. That's the context here, important. Verse 39, and he spake them, now he goes into parables, uh, just like he did in Matthew 24, by the way. Uh, pardon me, Matthew uh, 6, 7, and 8. Um, he, again, he spake a parable, that can, can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be his master. The word perfect there is literally more like mature. And verse 41, why beholdest thou the mote the speck that is in thy brother's eye, and, but perceive not the beam that is in your own eye. Either how canst thou say to thy brother, brother, let me pull out the mote that is in your eye, when you yourself behold is not the beam that is in your own eye. Thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of your own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to pull the mote that is in your brother's eye. I think Jesus is being funny here. This is hilarious if you think about it. Uh, I remember there was a, um, a, a movie done back in the early 90s, I think, um, The Gospel According to Matthew, and it was word for word, if you remember seeing that video, but they made this kind of fun, happy Jesus, which was kind of a first. Normally it was the stoned, hippie Jesus that was walking around, you know, but I like this Jesus, he was smiley and happy, but when he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he, he was speaking the, Matthew's word for word this, and, um, and he picks up this big stick and holds it up in his eye and he swings it around and almost hits Peter with it. And he says, you know, oof, you know, and he says, make sure and get the beam out of your own eye. And everybody starts laughing. I think this is a funny moment. Uh, he's being, you know, using sort of the ridiculous level of illustration, but it's exactly what we do when we see my sin on me is just a speck. My sin on you, well, it's a beam. Um, it's funny how we don't think our sin is that big a deal, but you're the one with the beam, be careful. This is huge. You know what exposes this beam spec problem? Driving. <laughs> it's the great equalizer. <laughs> Mommy, why do the idiots come out only when daddy's driving? <laughs> before thinking badly of others, I have to ask myself, have I done this to someone before? Um, well, verse 43. For a good tree bringeth forth, uh, not forth corrupt fruit, 
neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his fruit. For of, the, for of thorns men do not gather figs nor a bramble bush to gather grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. An evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Interesting, you know, um, you, don't, you don't know what's in a cup until it's tipped over. Um, Christians said, you know, Christians are like tea bags. You'll find out their true flavor when they're put in hot water. Um, that's what it's saying here, you know, um, it's out of the abundance of the heart. It's what's coming from your heart that comes out of the mouth. Have you ever said something? Oh, why did I say that? I can't believe I said that. And I would say, well, Jesus would say, believe it. You said it and it came from your heart. Where did that come from? From your heart. That's like, that's the truth. Um, good fruit comes from a good tree. Um, that's where Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. The key to being a good tree, bearing good fruit is be linked to Jesus Christ. He's the vine and we're the branches. Well, quickly, verse 46, whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which builds a house and dig deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose and the stream uh, beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that, uh, without a foundation and built his house upon the earth against which the stream did beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Have you ever seen those images of floods when houses, the, the water cuts into the cliff and the houses just start falling off the cliff into the water? Um, picture that. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. The rock is Jesus Christ. The shaky foundation, or as in Matthew's gospel, it uses the word sand or earth. But the key is to make sure and build your life. And, and the person who hears the word and does it, they're like the person building their house on a rock. But if you're saying, yeah, whatever, Brad, I'm not gonna let the debtor go. He owes me $500 and I'm gonna hold him to it. Well, you're building your house on the sand. Um, well, I don't know about that, Brett. You know, I, I, you know I, I, people are mean to me. I'm gonna be mean back. I'm gonna, give, I'm gonna pay him back. I'm not gonna forgive him. Well, then you're building your house on the sand. If you're merciful and forgive them before they're even sorry, well, then you're building your house on a rock. It's just what you're gonna, what are you gonna do? And, and don't be shocked when your house is all falling apart because you've been bitter and angry and you've uh, not forgiven your enemies or debts, um, you're bitter. Um, then don't be shocked when your house is all falling apart. This is what Jesus is teaching us. Um, you, know, you, you know, the Bible talks about, you know, willing, the, flesh, the flesh is weak, the spirit is willing. It's Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray that you enter not in temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So I would recommend that we all pray and say, Lord, give us strength to do your will, to do what you tell us to do and not be stingy and bitter and unforgiving people. But when bad things happen, rejoice. Are you in poverty? Rejoice because the Lord can use that. If you're rich, watch out, be careful. Great warning given to us. Good things to think about, lots to pray about. In Jesus' name, let's, let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful. These words of Jesus, always so powerful and important. Um, and I pray that we just have a fresh set of ears to listen to these things and meditate 
this week on what you tell us here in your word. Give us wisdom, Lord. I pray blessing upon this congregation here and online watching. I pray that we'd all be people submitted to your word, um, following the truth of scripture. Um, Lord, I pray that we'd not just be hearers, but doers of your word. We just commit our night to you and give everybody a safe journey home tonight, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.